Get the unmissable news stories of the day. This is the Beijing Hour. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Thursday, October the 6th, 2023. You're listening to a special holiday edition of the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, Japan's once again dumping nuclear-contaminated wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. China's claimed its first-ever men's marathon title at the Asian Games, taking the gold in Hangzhou. Smart appliances and other innovations are changing the way that people live and interact with their homes. In the second half of the program, we have more episodes of our Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series. And now checking the day's top stories. Japan started the second release of nuclear-contaminated wastewater from the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. The Tokyo Electric Power Company says it plans to carry out the release over 17 days to discharge 7,800 tons of the radioactive wastewater, roughly the same amount as the first discharge that ended on September 11th. On Wednesday, the South Korean government said it'll send a team of experts to Japan to monitor the situation. Jack Barton has more. This will be the third team of experts that South Korea has sent to Japan to monitor the water release and also ahead of the water release, uh, the first team arrived. They're from the National Institute of Nuclear Safety and what we're told is they will be at the International Atomic Energy Agency monitoring site at Fukushima and they will also be given access to the general TEPCO facilities to oversee at least the initial part of what is expected to be a 17-day second release. We don't know if they're going to be there for the entire release. And it's part of President Yoon Song-yeol's balancing act, really. Uh, the South Korean government, which has been seeking better relations with Tokyo, has essentially signed off on the release, while knowing that a large part of the South Korean public remains opposed to it. Uh, the most recent polls we have from the Gallup poll uh, shows that a little more than 70% of South Koreans continue to disapprove of the release and that even amongst conservatives, the people that vote for President Yoon Song-yeol, about 50% are also a disapprove of the release. And the number one fear is really around seafood. And we've seen seafood sales really drop. I was speaking to the manager of a branch of a popular chain in Gangnam, and he was telling me that they've been running at a loss now for about six months, and they're really having serious discussions about whether to hold on to see if the situation improves or just close up the business. So, you know, we've seen the big demonstrations die down, but the concerns that linger, and this really does remain a contentious issue despite the government's attempts to try and allay people's fears here. That was Jack Barton reporting. Uh, the race is on to grab the gavel left behind by ousted U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The biggest question on Capitol Hill is who will replace him. Uh, some House Republicans are already throwing their names into the hat, but as Nathan King reports, it could be an uphill battle with much division and frustration. After drama, what next? What we do know is that Kevin McCarthy, the man who only lasted nine months in the speakership and was the first to be ousted as speaker from the floor has essentially said he is not running again. I believe I can continue to fight maybe in a different manner. I will not run for speaker again. I'll have the conference pick somebody else. So the question next is who will take his place? Well, there are going to be lots of names 
floating around. But first of all, focus on these two. We have Steve Scalise, the number two of McCarthy, the House Majority Leader, who has been calling Conservatives for a long time. He's a Republican from Louisiana. He is very much part of the MAGA crowd, although he does at the moment uh, have cancer and going under treatment for that. Also look at Jim Jordan. If anyone you looked at the Benghazi hearings or the current impeachment inquiry, he is a flamethrower Republican congressman from Ohio, very much part of the MAGA crowd. The question is for both these and anyone else who gets in the races, can they command all of the votes essentially in the Republican caucus. Remember, they have a majority of about four. They can only lose about four votes. So it's going to be very, very difficult. There may be other contenders coming along as well. But essentially, it's a, to use a, a metaphor, it's a bit like a doctor changing, but the patient not. And the patient has the same diseases, the same divisions in the Republican Party when it comes to cutting spending or aid for Ukraine. Same divisions when it comes to whether to support Donald Trump's MAGA wing of the party or be more moderate. A lot of Republicans have seats where Joe Biden won to become president. So it's very, very complicated indeed. And the trouble is nothing can happen in the House of Representatives here until a speaker is appointed. Now, it'll take about a week for them to coalesce behind a candidate. There'll be a, a private vote amongst the Republicans. Then it will go to the whole floor. You should imagine the Democrats opposing whatever their choice and trying to nominate their own minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries. That's formulaic, but it's going to be very, very difficult. That was Nathan King on the possible successors to ousted U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. A major healthcare strike is taking place in the United States. Over 75,000 workers have walked off the job in five states and Washington, D.C., demanding higher wages. And Caroline Malone has more. A group of medical workers, pharmacists and optometrists, eye doctors, uh, took part in a protest in Virginia as part of a much larger group protesting against Kaiser, against the health company who they say have to give them higher wages and need to hire more staff in order to improve their conditions. Uh, you know, the unions that are representing these workers say they've been part of negotiations for six months, and yet in that time, they haven't seen the types of conditions that they need to see for their staff members. We were there during COVID. Frontline healthcare workers were there for our patients, for our communities. We were touted as healthcare heroes and now when we're at bargaining all we are are told is we're too expensive and these workers say a lot of their colleagues have left since then and they haven't seen an increase in wages so that's why they've decided to come out to the streets across different states of the united states and make sure that the company starts to appreciate them in the way that they feel like they should be that was caroline malone reporting a survey from the New York Federal Reserve shows U.S. job seekers have the highest ever wage expectations when getting a new job. Uh, Karina Mitchell finds out what makes people feel comfortable when asking for more money as economic conditions remain restrictive. Many U.S. workers are demanding a record amount of pay for the jobs they perform. The average employee now unwilling to accept anything less than about $78,000 annually for a new position, up from $72,000 a year ago. That's just one of the findings from a recent survey from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. We came out of COVID 
and had a period of the lowest unemployment, this most serious labor shortage the country had seen in many decades. And it caused people to get used to wages that kept going up uh, week after week, month after month. But the outplacement firm's senior vice president says the pendulum is now swinging back in favor of employers, particularly as unemployment rates creep higher and wage growth is slowing. He believes boom time for job seekers may be over and the labor force needs to lower its expectations. I think those expectations are now falling a little bit out of touch with reality. But that's not necessarily true for everyone looking for work. Mona Lipson was laid off from her environmental, social and governance job in March of 2020 and didn't find work again until November of 2021. It was a great job, probably the best I'd ever had, fabulous co-workers, bosses. But that new job was short-lived. It was a, a startup that had been doing really well. And unfortunately, it felt like it kind of got caught up in that in this weird tech recession that we've been going through. And the company had had a couple of layoffs, a couple of employee reductions. And I got cut in the third one, which was January 31st of this year. Luckily for her, she quickly landed what she considers an even better job. She attributes it to a still robust labor market and recognizing her value, and also due to recently enacted wage transparency laws where she lives. I asked her how much more she earns now. Almost double, a little bit less than double. That's, that's amazing, and congratulations yeah. for that. Thank you. NYU economics professor Nicholas Economides is upbeat about workers' wages despite a slowing economy. He thinks that while compromise is necessary, job seekers do still have some momentum in the coming months. I see some uh, significantly higher uh, compensation packages by workers, uh, not as high as their expectations, but uh, still uh, significantly higher than we have seen since uh, 2019. That was a report on uh, rising wage expectations in the United States. Coming up, China records an historic victory at the Hangzhou Asian Games. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in. It's 11 minutes past the hour. He Jiez claimed China's first men's marathon title at the Asian Games, clocking in at 2 hours, 13 minutes, and 2 seconds. That's run half a minute faster than runner-up Han Il-rong from North Korea. In the women's race, China's Zheng Dishun took the silver at nearly 2 hours, 28 minutes. The gold medal went to Eunice Chumba of Bahrain. More action now. Yang Guang joins us uh, live from Hangzhou. And uh, good evening. First of all, uh, Yang Guang, China has uh, won this historic gold medal in the men's marathon race. So uh, please tell us more about this. Evening, Shane. Yeah, on the final day of the athletics action at the Hangzhou Asian Games, Chinese athlete He Jie collected a gold medal in the men's marathon race. He Jie finished with a time of 2 hours, 13 minutes and 2 seconds. Uh, this is a bit far from his personal best. Earlier this year, He Jie broke the national marathon record in Wuxi with a time of 2 hours, 7 minutes and 30 seconds. In Hangzhou, He Jie didn't go for his full speed from the start. Rather, um, he conserved his energy for the final kilometers, which worked and enabled him to open the gap in the final stage with North Korean runner Han Yi-ryong. 
who finished the race 25 seconds behind, and China's Yang Xiaohui won the bronze medal. In the women's race, China's Zhang Dexuan finished second to win a silver medal.、Um, she finished behind a Bahrain runner, but she already ran the time better than her world championships and Olympics mark. So, it was a quite successful day for the Chinese marathon runners. Shane. Well,、um, now what will happen, or what will be the highlights rather of、uh, Friday's action? Well, first of all, break dancing competitions will finally open on Friday. It will be the sports debut at Asian Games or any other multi-sport international sporting events. Break dancing has also been included to the Paris Olympic program next year. On Friday, we will see、uh, first to see the men's and women's round robin competitions. And in basketball, the Chinese men's team will face the Chinese Taipei squad in the bronze medal game after a disappointing and stunning loss to the Philippines. Team China needs to use this game to regain confidence in front of the home crowd, and after that, the Philippines and the Jordan will battle for the men's basketball gold medal. Another bronze medal to watch is in football, where the Chinese women's team plays Uzbekistan, while Japan and North Korea will meet in the final. And in badminton, semi-final action across different events will start on Friday. There will be several Chinese athletes appearing. Including women's singles player Herbin Zhao, who defeated world champion PV Shindu earlier in the quarterfinals, as well as Chinese doubles pair Chen Jingchen and Jia Yifan. Shane, thank you very much. That was、uh, Yang Guang at the Hangzhou Asian Games. We're at 14 minutes past the hour.、Uh, passenger flows in China are on the rise as uh, the uh, eighth day uh, or the eight-day Mid-Autumn Festival and National Day holiday nears its end.、Uh, railways are expected to log nearly 18 million passenger trips on Thursday, 900,000 higher than a day earlier. Water transport's expected to record over a million passenger trips. That's up over 160 percent from last year. In meantime, official figures show that customer flows in 36 major shopping Districts across the country saw a rise of over 150 percent from last year during the first five days of the holiday. China's box office has exceeded two billion yuan since the start of the holiday period. That's roughly 280 million U.S. dollars. Market analysts say the country's box office is set to reach another record high. Dai Kai has more. The movie box office for this year's National Day holiday season is off to a roaring start. The rising momentum shows no signs of stopping, even after a vibrant summer season with a diverse lineup of films, renowned directors, and an extended holiday period. Whenever you smell that buttery popcorn, you know it's movie time. And at this year's National Day holiday, a wide variety of films are hitting the silver screen, promising something for everyone. I just watched sports comedy *Lose to Win* with my friends at a local screening. Honestly, I didn't have high expectations going in, but it turned out to be a delightful surprise. We laughed, we cried, and there were some pleasant surprises along the way. I'm about to see *Under the Light*, the film directed by Zhang Yimou. It's been in the making for quite a while, around four years, from what I've heard online. So I'm really looking forward to it. Online opinions seem pretty polarized, so I'm curious to see for myself. During the first few days of the holiday season, many people were probably traveling or going on trips, and theaters can expect another rise in the number of moviegoers. Analysts I've spoken to say the combination of a super-packed holiday season and multiple major blockbuster series is creating quite a buzz. In fact, since ticket pre-sale opened, they've been confident we might just be looking at another record high. From cinematic perspective, it's rare to see the works of Zhang Yimou and Chen Kaige. 
uh, two iconic and influential directors of China's old generation released at the same time. Uh, more and more moviegoers believe that the quality of the Chinese movies is getting improved, which encourages them to choose uh, domestic productions. I believe that uh, the movies released during this holiday could continue to boost the market to a large extent after summer uh, movie season, and the market will basically return to the level of uh, 2019. It will take a few more days to see if the box office will live up to the hype, but from what the market sees now, it'll almost certainly end on a high note. That was Dai Kai reporting. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up, technological innovations changing the way that people live and interact with their homes. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. Seventeen minutes past the hour. Technological innovations have changed the way that people live and interact with their homes. The growing demand for a customized experience at home also paves the way for the development of smart home appliances in China. Zheng Tao has the latest. A smart home is a living space that is equipped with a variety of devices and systems that can be controlled remotely through a smartphone, tablet, or computer. These smart devices are designed to automate various household tasks such as lighting, heating, and entertainment. Wu Reizong has installed such facilities in her home. She says she can enjoy a seamless living experience tailored specifically to her preferences. My home used to have all kinds of lights installed in different rooms. The combination was very chaotic. I've replaced them with an intelligent control panel, which looks like a little iPad on the wall. I can control the lights with my voice. It looks good, and it's very convenient. Another advantage of smart homes is their potential to save energy and reduce costs associated with traditional housing. By monitoring energy usage and adjusting settings accordingly, smart homes can help homeowners minimize their carbon footprint and lower utility bills. Besides, smart homes also offer enhanced security features for homeowners. With integrated surveillance cameras, smart homes can detect and respond to potential threats in real time. Smart home devices like smart locks are very popular. People can use passwords and facial recognition to unlock the door. The device can also provide real-time information to see who is at the door. A man surnamed Yi has been in the smart home business in Jiangsu for around two years. He says the rise of smart homes represents a good business opportunity, but the market penetration rate in China is still very low. The market demand for smart homes definitely has increased. However, people are still not quite familiar with concepts. I hope more people can enjoy the benefits of smart home appliances and feel the fun brought by new technologies. Industry insiders estimate that shipments of smart home appliances had reached 260 million units in China in 2022. Figures show ever since 2017, China's smart home market has been growing steadily. The market is expected to hit 715 billion yuan, around 100 billion US dollars this year. As the technology behind smart homes continues to evolve, we can expect even more innovative features in the near future. For the Beijing Hour, 
This is Jiangtao. The catering industry in China is embracing smart technologies too to enhance the quality and scope of their services. Zhou Feng recently interviewed the manager of a company to learn about their latest operations. While many people associate smart restaurants with robots cooking and serving food, the catering industry has taken the smart technologies to a new level. Qian De is the manager of Dianzhan Village Catering Company in Suzhou, Jiangsu Province. Its main service is providing nutritious meals for large companies that require bulk orders. Chen says that their nearly fully mechanized and digitized technologies give them a competitive advantage in the industry. We're using a fully automated rice cooker for large-scale production. The entire process, including disinfection, cleaning and packaging, is mechanized. It means it doesn't require any manual labor from the moment the rice is poured in until the final product is ready. It can produce approximately 3,000 boxed meals in an hour. The fully automated vegetable washing machine is also controlled by a computer system. The system can greatly reduce the need for manual labor in the whole production process. The intelligent equipment is complemented by a management model that automatically collects data during various procedures. The data includes ingredient weights, ideal ingredient proportions, and estimated dish quantities. Manager Chen explains how the advanced system works alongside their large-scale mechanized production capacity. For example, 5,000 kilograms of cabbage may come out as 3,500 kilograms after going through the automated vegetable cutting machine. The system will display both numbers. It'll calculate how many servings can be made from the ingredients and how many other ingredients you need to add. At the same time, the system can display the nutritional content of the cabbage, including the amount of vitamins. Of course, it can also detect whether there are any pesticide residues on the vegetable at the beginning. With the help of these equipment and systems, the company is planning to expand their operations and serve more customers in the near future. In recent years, smart technologies have increasingly reshaped the business of China's catering industry. Some companies are establishing smart canteens. The system automatically weighs each dish and calculates the price after diners place their trays in the smart sensing area. The cutting-edge services have brought customers distinctive dining experiences. All the dishes I took cost 16 yuan. They're not expensive. Dining at the canteen is quite convenient. The key is that it's very intelligent. According to industry data, there are approximately 4 million smart restaurant outlets across China. Among them, the top 10 generate a total turnover of nearly 40 billion yuan, or around 5.6 billion US dollars a year. For the Beijing Hour, this is Zhou Feng. The designer toy industry has experienced rapid growth in China in recent years. Uh, more franchises have mushroomed and more people have chosen to step into the field. Liu Jiahang spoke with some art toy designers. Art toys, also known as designer toys, are a type of collectibles created by artists and designers. They're either self-produced or made by small independent toy companies, typically in very limited editions. The intellectual property or IP of these toys is a critical factor in their success, as it remains the core competitiveness in the field. Designer Cui Junji has developed many art toy IPs over the years. He believes they are a unique type of consumer goods with bright prospects. 
Art toys have a high level of user engagement and are considered luxurious collectibles with an artistic appeal. Also, young people nowadays have very strong purchasing power when it comes to art toys. The thriving art toy industry has not only boosted spending among young people, but has also inspired more recent graduates to pursue a career in the field. A young designer surnamed Huang chose to dive into the world of art toys right after graduation. Majoring in graphic design, she became interested in blind box marketing, a popular trend in the world of collectibles and toys. In her junior year, she's now been working for a toy company in Guangzhou for two years. From the initial idea to graphic design, 3D modeling, and the final production, I'm involved in every step of the process. Designers need to keep a close eye on each stage and give constructive feedback. Huang says the variety of art toys is becoming more diverse. They cater to not just younger audiences. Pocket-sized toys are more popular among young people since they are more reasonable in price. There are other groups of people who are fans of one or multiple toy figures or IPs, and for those relatively more expensive products that are considered collectibles, the age range of the followers can go up to 40 to 50 years old. Designer Cui Junjie also says the potential development trajectory of the art toy industry lies in its ability to adapt to public demand. Art toy brands are synchronizing with many commercial IPs. Designers are paying more attention to user preferences instead of sticking to monotonous designs. Companies now have higher standards when recruiting designers. Data shows the toy market size in China reached almost 19 billion U.S. dollars in 2022, and is projected to reach nearly 35 billion by 2028. Art toys hold a significant sentimental value for their owners, which far exceeds their material value. They've become a new way for people to express themselves and engage in interpersonal communication. For the Beijing Hour. This is Liu Jiaheng. 26 past the hour, China has harvested over a third of its autumn crops, including 40% of middle season rice, 30% of corn, and 20% of soybeans. In northeast China, local farmer Yu Yunbo says he's optimistic for a better harvest than last year. I planted rice across more than 33 hectares of land. The harvest is well underway. Rice yields per hectare are half a ton higher than last year. Farmers in Jilin Province are also expecting higher corn yields thanks to the、uh, adoption of improved soil management practices. Han Fengsheng is the director of a local agricultural cooperative in Lishu County. This year, farmers in our cooperative planted corn across 1,000 hectares. The crop has grown very well. Compared with previous years, we expect a bumper harvest in 2023 with an estimated rice output per hectare of close to 15 tons. China is the world's biggest wheat producer. The country produced around 140 million tons of wheat during the 2022-23 season. Well, China and Brazil have completed a commercial deal in their local currencies for the first time. The transaction involved 43 crates of pulp exported in August from the Brazilian、uh, port of Santos to Qingdao in East China.、Uh, the businesses involved completed the deal in Brazilian reals in late September. China and Brazil signed a memorandum of understanding in April to promote trade in their local currencies. 
At 28 past the hour, Beijing at 12 degrees overnight. Uh, tomorrow is sunny and 22. Chongqing has moderate rainfall that will continue through the day tomorrow. 19 degrees in the evening, 20 on Friday. Uh, last is 11 overnight. Tomorrow's cloudy and 21. Hong Kong's at 28 degrees this evening. Tomorrow, some clouds and 32 degrees Celsius. And that wraps up our special edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, Japan's once again dumping nuclear-contaminated wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. China's claimed its first-ever men's marathon title at the Asian Games, taking the gold in Hangzhou. And smart appliances and other innovations are changing the way that people live and interact with their homes. Coming up next, we'll continue the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series. And today we'll explore how Xi Jinping has ensured effective communication with all parties concerned to form a concerted effort in realizing the Chinese dream. We'll also get an idea of how uh, Xi Jinping won people's trust and respect, which turned into a greater strength in turning the Chinese people uh, into uh, striving forward. On behalf of the staff, Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music Talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. German railway company Deutsche director of the International Monetary Foundation. Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. 我爱你. This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you're a rookie, 你好, or a sophisticated learner, 我来北京五年了, there is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好。Whether working at local levels or at the central level, Xi Jinping has always paid great attention to the well-being of Taiwan residents. Promoting communication and exchanges across the Taiwan Straits and exploring integrated regional development are always on his mind. On December 15, 2008, the Chinese mainland and Taiwan officially started direct sea, air transport and postal services. The dream of having three direct links for people on both sides of the Taiwan Straits finally came true. Back in 1979, in its message to compatriots in Taiwan, the Chinese mainland proposed for the first time that transportation and postal services between the two sides be established, cross-strait trade be developed, and economic exchanges be carried out. In the following three decades, 
Establishing three direct links was a long and arduous journey. Fujian Province sits along the coastline in southeast China and is separated from Taiwan by a narrow strip of water. The closest distance between Xiamen of Fujian and Kimen of Taiwan is only about 1,800 meters. People from both sides can even see each other on a fine day. There are mostly relatives from the same clans and share common ancestors, and therefore have long been hoping for direct transportation services across the straits. When Xi Jinping arrived in Fujian for his new post in Xiamen City in 1985, the effort to build three direct links between Xiamen and Qingmen officially kicked off. She encouraged the expansion of trade and people-to-people -people exchanges across the straits. He communicated and coordinated closely with relevant departments at municipal and provincial levels, people in business communities and specialists familiar with Taiwan issues, and formulated and implemented many effective plans. The gap between the two sides of the straits was gradually narrowing. In January of 1987, residents from Xiamen and Qingmen set up fireworks to celebrate the Chinese New Year together for the first time. In October of the same year, the Taiwan authorities announced it would allow its residents to visit their families in the Chinese mainland. Prior to that, the channel of communication between the two sides had been closed for 38 years since 1949. The opening now also paved the way for establishing direct links across the straits. Chinese mainland and Taiwan were no longer cut off from each other. As more Taiwan people traveled to the mainland for family reunions, and more and more investors from Taiwan also came to the mainland to set up factories. After negotiating with different parties, Xi Jinping seized the historic opportunity to set up a pilot trade zone and a buffer zone on Xiyang Island of Fujian for direct exchanges and cooperation between the Chinese mainland and Taiwan. She also introduced a series of preferential policies to attract investment from Taiwan, which proved to be quite successful. As cross-strait trade and economic ties deepened, people from both sides increasingly longed for the establishment of direct links. That was also something that she had in mind. On the eve of Chinese New Year in 1992, she delivered a speech on radio extending his New Year greetings to compatriots in Taiwan, during which he introduced progress made by Fuzhou in promoting the three direct links. He said, the Fuzhou airport is well prepared for cooperation with the civil aviation sector in Taiwan in opening new air routes. The Lianjiang County Post Bureau has sent letters to the Maozhou Telecom Bureau suggesting both sides of the Taiwan Straits to establish direct mail and telecom links. The waterways between coastal areas in Fuzhou, including Maui, Pingtan and Huangqi, are only dozens of miles from Taiwan. There is every reason to establish direct transport links. He also appealed to the audience with his own vision and wish for a better connected future. 
If we have direct transport and trade links, people who have factories in coastal areas of Fuzhou can manufacture their products in the morning and sell them in Taiwan in the afternoon. Workers can go to work in the mainland factory in the morning and fly back to Taiwan in the evening. How convenient will that be? I look forward to that day, he said. The mainland proposal was responded with enthusiasm from Taiwan. Many social groups from the island travel to Fujian for exchanges and studies. With goodwill from the mainland, Taiwan authorities gradually relax its travel policies. The three direct links between the two sides began to look promising. However, things took an unexpected turn. In June 1995, Crow relations were sabotaged after the then-Taiwan leader Li Tanhui visited the United States and made inappropriate remarks. The three direct links between the Chinese mainland and Taiwan, which had just taken a small step, were brought to a sudden halt. Even the level of people-to-people -people exchanges dropped quickly. What should be done next? Would efforts in three direct links be given up halfway? Local officials in Fujian, who had put in years of hard work on this, felt anxious and confused. Xi Jinping, then Deputy Secretary of the CPC Fujian Provincial Committee, went to the Provincial Taiwan Work Office to discuss this issue. He made it clear that Fujian province would remain committed to promoting the three direct links and also called on relevant parties to take solid steps on the preparation work. This face-to-face -face discussion reassured everyone, and preparations for the establishment of direct links across the Straits proceeded in an orderly manner. In the small hours of April 19th in 1997, Haitian port of Xiamen was already bustling with activity. Workers were loading cargo onto the Shengda container ship owned by Fujian Xiamen Shipbuilding. The sleepy harbor slowly woke up to the sounds of busy footsteps while scattered lights broke through the morning mist. At 3.58 a.m., with the last mooring rope untied, the vessel, loaded with more than 20 containers, sailed for the port of Kaohsiung Harbor on the eastern coast of the Taiwan Straits. With the opening of the direct shipping pilot program across the Straits, direct commercial vessels traveled across the Taiwan Straits for the first time in 48 years. In December of 2008, Chinese mainland and Taiwan welcomed a new era of direct exchanges in mail, transportation and trade across the Straits. Over the years, Xi Jinping has been actively communicating with relevant parties to push forward cross-strait relations. In 2019, 40 years after the Chinese mainland issued message to compatriots in Taiwan, Xi Jinping again called for more cross-strait dialogues, exchanges and cooperation at a commemorative meeting. 
Only when dialogue replaces confrontation, cooperation replaces disputes, and a win-win mindset replaces zero-sum mentality, will cross-race relations move steadily and progress far. We are willing to engage in broad exchanges of views with all parties, groups, or individuals in Taiwan regarding political issues between the two sides and the promotion of China's peaceful reunification. She said that fellow Chinese on both sides of the Taiwan Straits are one family connected by blood that runs thicker than water. The Chinese mainland would always respect and care for Taiwan people and work to deliver benefits to them, as well as promote integrated development in all fields between the two sides. Xi Jinping once said. People's support is of the utmost political importance. Only by bringing together the people's support can their strength be pulled. In whatever position he has held, Xi Jinping always attaches great importance to communicating and cooperating with other political parties and people without party affiliations. He encouraged a free expression of views from non-CPC members and actively listened to them. In order to pull wisdom and strength from all sides, he has also created favorable conditions for their work and supported them in personal progress. She says these people are trustworthy friends who make up an important force in promoting social development. Members of other political parties and people without party affiliations form a great talent pool. Many of them have made outstanding contributions to the founding of the People's Republic of China. Many are specialists and scholars who are dedicated to China's modernization process. Others include writers, artists, and teachers who have made remarkable achievements in cultural and education sectors. These, in Xi's opinion, constitute a galaxy of talent. In 1990, when she took office as secretary of the CPC Fuzhou Municipal Committee, he initiated a series of symposiums with other political parties. The symposiums, held every three months at Yushan Hotel in Fuzhou, were later known as the Yushan Quarterly Talks. She attended every single symposium. At the beginning. Everyone thought it was a perfunctory meeting and did not take it seriously. They soon discovered, however, that Xi Jinping listened quite attentively, not only taking notes but also posing pertinent questions. What inspired the participants most was that problems raised at the symposium were worked out very soon. Some were resolved on the spot; others immediately delegated to the municipal authorities. Matters raised at previous symposiums were followed up in the later ones. She also directly solicited opinions and suggestions from other political parties on a monthly basis. All these greatly inspire the enthusiasm of members from other political parties to participate in political consultation and policy making. More and more of them got on board in the construction of socialist democracy. Some said. The spring on Yushan Mountain is the spring of democracy.
While working in Fujian, Xi Jinping became friends with many from other political parties, as he always treated them with great sincerity and respect, which in turn promoted the mobilization of resources for local development. Sun Xingfen was one of the members from other political parties whom she befriended in Fuzhou. Sun put forward many valuable proposals concerning port construction in Fuzhou. He recalled that she not only appreciated his professional opinions, but also cared a lot about his personal development. Xi Jinping sincerely cared and supported people from other political parties, and that's why I was perfectly happy to work till I was over 70. I just wanted to contribute more. Many others share the same heartfelt feeling when recalling the old days working with Xi. Some said she has the sort of personal charisma to attract new friends and can pull strengths from various sectors to serve the people and the country. Looking at Xi Jinping's decades-long political career, navigating different interest groups and diverse ways of thinking has always been part of the job. He has proven to be an expert in communicating and coordinating with all parties concerned to form a concerted effort in realizing the Chinese dream. She says working in unity is the path the Chinese people must take to create great historic achievements. This is CGTN Radio. Xi Jinping worked at the grassroots level for years. He's a leader that comes from the people. During his tenure in various positions, Xi Jinping has always prioritized the protection of people's health and safety. People first, life first has been his guiding principle and governing philosophy. In July of 1992, the worst flood in half a century hit Mingjiang River in southeast China's Fujian province. Zhongzhou Island in Fuzhou City sits on this river. More than 2,200 people in over 800 households lived on this tiny island roughly the size of 10 soccer fields. On the night of July the 6th, turbulent waves carrying floating objects crashed onto the bridge that spanned the river. Water level approached the surface of the bridge. Zhongzhou Island was quickly inundated and water rose to the second floor of residential buildings. Stranded residents crowded near the windows on the second and third floors crying out for help. Xi Jinping, then secretary of the Communist Party of China Fuzhou Municipal Committee, rushed to the area upon hearing of the situation. Across the torrential waters, she instructed that the top priority was to get the stranded residents to safety. He mobilized all available resources for the rescue effort. Rescue teams arrived soon and crossed over to the island as quickly as possible. They rescued the elderly and children first before climbing onto the rooftops or near the windows to help people trapped inside the houses. 
Over the next three days, she shuttled back and forth between different flood-stricken areas and spared no efforts to ensure that people's lives and safety were guaranteed. Three days later, all 2,200 residents who had been stranded on Zhongzhou Island were moved to safety with no casualties. Just as Xi Jinping was at the front line coordinating the fight against the flood. His wife Peng Liyuan was in the hospital delivering their child. However, he had no time to visit his wife and their newborn daughter. Wherever there were difficulties and emergencies, there Xi Jinping was. That was also how he earned the trust and confidence of the people. On the evening of August 11, 2004, Typhoon Reinanim was about to make landfall in Zhejiang Province. Xi Jinping, then Secretary of the CPC Zhejiang Provincial Committee, held an emergency teleconference at midnight and put forth the objective of no deaths, fewer injuries regarding preventative work. The unprecedented demand aroused heated discussion among the public throughout the province and even the country. Prior to this, Zhejiang once suffered severe casualties in rescue operations by emphasizing the protection of material property. Xi Jinping, however, put forward a completely different approach, prioritizing protection of the people's lives. He said, "Rescuing the people is always the top priority. Human lives are the most precious, a matter of life and death. We must do everything possible to safeguard people's lives first." She also proposed that the focus should be put on preventative work, with relocating residents to safe areas ahead of time being an important task. Typhoon relief work is not just about rushing to the spot when it hits; it is about taking appropriate precautions before its arrival. He requested a number of precautionary measures. For instance, residents living in houses not safe enough must all be transferred to safe areas. Fishermen must watch out, even if they choose to stay in fishing ports. On August the 10th of 2006, Super Typhoon Sao Mai made landfall in Wenzhou City of Zhejiang Province. Under Xi's instructions, over one million people across the province had been relocated in advance, including those living near the sea walls, in rundown houses, makeshift sheds, and low-lying areas. This move provided vulnerable people with maximum protection. Xi Jinping is a trustworthy friend of the people, who not only protects lives in emergencies but also cares about people's basic needs. He says the aspirations of the people to live a better life is the focus of our efforts. One day in March of 1984, she, then secretary of CPC Zhengding County Committee in North China's Hebei Province, went on an inspection tour of school buildings in the villages. He arrived first in Beijia Village, which was a relatively well-off village at that time. However, he was shocked by what he saw. The gate of the village school had collapsed, and tiles on the roof of classrooms were broken. Not a single window pane was intact. 
The doors wouldn't close properly, and students were crowded inside the classrooms, with some sitting on the ground because there were not enough chairs. That was a rare occasion when she lost his temper. He raised his voice and questioned the village official and the principal who had hurried over. How could you let this happen? It's unbelievable. How could you see a school in such condition and not do anything? I know. Um, the renovation of the schools has lagged behind. We haven't paid enough attention. But by the time when by what time? You must start working on this problem here and now, and report your plans to the county's education bureau no later than next week. You must begin with courtyard walls, light bulbs, window panes, wooden desks, and chairs. A primary school must not look like this. Not with the resources you have in the village, you have what it takes to improve the school. If you don't start making a difference in a month's time, consider yourself dismissed from your post. That was a reenactment of the conversation based on published works. Later, Xi's tone softened a little bit. He said to the village official in sincerity, "You have let your children down." Their school should have the best building in the village. Following that trip, she coordinated resources from various sides to speed up the renovation of the school buildings in Beijia Village. On June the first of 1986, which was International Children's Day. Students in Beijia Village Primary School had their first class in the newly built two-story building. From Chengding to Shanghai, people's well-being had always been on Xi's mind, especially those who lived in hardship. In Fujian, he supported farmers with disabilities to make a better living from raising silkworms. In Zhejiang, he visited migrant workers at construction sites on scorching summer days, offering them towels and mineral water. She often tells officials working with him that solving problems concerning people's livelihood is the core task of government officials. We must feel for the people. We should be good at doing the little things for our people. We must work in the interests of the people to live up to their expectation. After taking office as the Chinese president, Xi Jinping has expressed his concerns regarding people's well-being in his New Year's address every year. In his eyes, that is of the greatest significance. We will provide assistance to all those in need of help, including poverty-stricken farmers and urban residents living hard lives, to guarantee the basic living conditions so they feel the warmth of care in our society. To get tens of millions of rural population out of poverty and to help them live a decent life remain a moral and emotional obligation for me. As we greet the new year, what I care most about are fellow citizens who still live in hardship. I'm seriously concerned about their food supply and accommodation, and how they are celebrating the New Year and the Spring Festival. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, 
income, social security, health care, elderly care, housing and the environment, among others. In decades of working in various localities, Xi Jinping has devoted wholeheartedly to the people and has therefore won trust and love from the people. Every time he left for a new post, his folks were reluctant to part with him. In 1985, Xi left Zhending to work in southeast China's Fujian province. On the day of departure, he planned to leave early before work started. To his surprise, however, when he got out of the office building, the courtyard was already crowded with people coming to see him off. Those who came to bid farewell to him included entrepreneurs he had helped, farmers he had befriended, colleagues he had worked with, as well as villagers from nearby. The car slowly started and drove out of the courtyard. Crowds of people waved goodbye to him, and she waved back from inside the car. In October of 2002, she left Fujian, where he had worked for over 17 years for a post in East China's Zhejiang province. She said to the people who came to see him off, From now on, I'll consider myself a Fujian person living outside the province. In March of 2007, she left Zhejiang to work in Shanghai. Shen Hongguang, a Shanghai official who went to Zhejiang to welcome Xi, Recall the moment of Xi's departure. When Xi said he could hardly express how reluctant he was to leave Zhejiang, the same emotions could be read on the faces of local officials and residents. Their reluctance to say goodbye and genuine emotions were both touching and heartfelt. Seven months later, Xi left Shanghai for Beijing. Even though it was a short tenure, she was known and loved by local people in Shanghai. Some said Xi Jinping has a natural rapport with the people and his sincerity comes across quite genuine. When working in Shanghai, she often said, We must love the people as we love our parents. We must work in the interest of the people and lead them into a better future. He also said, We must feel for the people. When we do so, we won't be able to eat well or sleep well if we know they still live hard lives. Then we will find a thousand ways to solve their problems. Those remarks resonate with the Chinese people. Over the course of several decades, Xi Jinping went from a young local official to China's top leader, but his devotion to the people has never changed. For Xi, putting the people first was never a slogan, but means actions to be taken. Xi Jinping's genuine devotion has won him people's trust and support, which turns into greater strength in uniting the Chinese people to strive forward on a new journey in a new era. Takeaway Chinese, where you can take some Chinese away and experience progress day by day. Takeaway Chinese, we will promise you a difference. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Round Table.
table. Coming to you live from Beijing. From Beijing. Round table. Round table. Round table. Connecting China and the world. We bring you fun and timely discussions about what's affecting our lives everywhere, every day. Tune in to Round Table, where the East meets the West, and understanding is the goal. From north to south, east to west, people in China are chasing their dreams and leaving their mark. Want to know how they beat the odds and made a difference? Footprints brings you the true life stories of their journeys. 